All right, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open it to Matthew 28. And by the way, if you're in the lounge, there's a few seats in the front up here if you'd like to come in. Um, We were scheduled to be in Colossians 3 this morning, but when I looked at the passage that was on the schedule to speak on, I already spoke on that passage a couple years ago, and I toyed with the idea of just preaching that sermon again to see if anybody noticed. But I thought, no, there's other good things to speak about, so it'll give me a chance this week and next week to talk about something that is important to our church right now and is important to me. So we're going to look at Matthew 28. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one from the seat back in front of you, and you'll find Matthew 28, 16 to 20 on page 706 of that Bible. I might need a drink of water at some point this morning if one of the ushers could get me one. Thank you. Have you ever uh, asked why isn't Christianity working anymore? For those of you who are too young to remember the 1950s, the state of Christianity then might astound you. Nearly 70% of Americans identified themselves as belonging to a church or a synagogue. Religious themes were regularly discussed in in public life, in the mainstream media. Pastors and theologians debated issues alongside scholars and politicians. A Catholic priest even had a well-watched network TV show on matters of religion. Well, that all started to change in the 1960s as church attendance dropped, clergy left their callings for other pursuits, religion began to lose its voice in in the public square. Thank you. Thanks, Al. So given those declines, by the 1970s, the American church was beginning to respond, and they responded in at least two ways. One was increasing political involvement, especially among evangelicals. The moral majority, and then focus on the family and others, um, pressed Bible-believing Americans to stand up and fight for godly values. The second response was the church growth movement. Churches revamped their approaches. They became more sensitive to people's felt needs and interests. And so traditions and doctrines were jettisoned in favor of more relevant messages, more entertaining music, more uh, practical programs and ministries. And the results of both of these efforts in some ways have been very impressive. Today, over a thousand megachurches dot the suburban landscape in America. That's an average of 20 for every state. The... uh, Evangelical voting bloc is a force to be reckoned with during election season. In fact, by the turn of the millennium, the evangelicals had even voted in their own evangelical president. And yet, behind some of these limited successes, there there is a serious reality of failure. Christians have become marginalized from public life and public debate. In both the media and higher education, there's a decidedly anti-Christian sentiment. American culture has left behind Christian values, and church attendance is in decline, especially among the younger generations. So how how did this happen with with billions of dollars that have been poured into the church growth movement and, and political mobilization? The American church has more money, greater resources, more expertise than the church of just about any other time and place. How can it be that we have so significantly lost our influence? we may be tempted to ask, why isn't Christianity working anymore? Answer? Well, there's not one simple answer. (laughs) 
But I'd like to suggest that a big part of the answer has to do with the fact that somewhere along the line we stopped following Jesus' strategy. Remember Jesus, the founder of Christianity? Christ, the guy Christianity is named after, the one we worship? Somewhere along the line we stopped following his strategy. I suppose we stopped long before the 1960s. It's just that starting in the 1960s, the broader culture began to change and the strategies that had worked for the church up to that time no longer worked nearly as well. You see, I grew up in a world in which to be a good, faithful, evangelical Christian meant two things. You supported evangelical political causes and you supported your local church by attending faithfully, by giving financially, by volunteering to help run the church ministries. But is this anything close to Jesus' strategy? Well, let's turn to Matthew's Gospel and find out. I want to start with this well-known passage that Elfie read for us, which sums up Jesus' strategy just about as well as anywhere. The Great Commission. Let's look again at Matthew 28, 17 to 20. Let me read these verses. This is taking place right after Jesus' resurrection, right before his departure to ascend back to God his Father after his ministry is completed. And starting in verse 17, we read that when Jesus' disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So here we see Jesus' strategy. He sent his followers, his disciples, not primarily to engage in politics, not to, to man and support the growth of big trendy churches, but to go and make disciples. What's a disciple? It's, it's an apprentice. It's a, a Padawan for you Star Wars fans. And how were Jesus' first disciples to go out and make disciples of their own? Well, they were to baptize them and they were to teach them to obey everything that Jesus had taught them to obey. Now, when I was a, a young Christian, I didn't understand why preachers were always applying this passage to us today. I mean, after all, Jesus isn't telling us to go and make disciples. He's, he's telling his original disciples to do that. Well, then someone pointed out to me that Jesus told his original disciples to teach their disciples to obey everything he commanded them. And, and what was the last thing that Jesus commanded them? To go and make disciples, right? <laughs> so... Jesus' disciples were supposed to go and make disciples, and they were to teach those disciples to make disciples, who made disciples, and so on. Right down to you and me. And so these verses do actually apply to us after all. This was and this is Jesus' strategy. And by the way, for you math types, check out the math on this strategy. It explains how within 300 years or so, an estimated 50% of the Roman Empire came to be disciples of Jesus. Let's say that Jesus' original 12 disciples, Matthew mentions 11 here, there was a 12th picked in the book of Acts. Let's say they each made five disciples of their own, and we'll be conservative. We'll give them 30 years to do this, to make five disciples. 
And of course, it takes 10, 30-year generations to get the, down the 300 years that I'm talking about. So by the second generation, you have 60 new disciples, if they each make five, plus the original 12. That's 72. Then in the third, if the new 60 each make five, and we'll assume the original 12 have died by now, you have 360. In the fourth, you have 1,800. By the time you get to the 10th, can you believe it? You have under or over 28 million disciples, which is about 50% of the population of the Roman Empire at that time. And given that lots of Christians were martyred along the way, they must have done a little better than five apiece. But can you see what Jesus' game plan was? He wasn't primarily building an institution, be it political or ecclesiastical. No, he was launching a people movement. Let's take a look at Matthew and see how Jesus does this. Because if we, can, or if we get to the end of Matthew's gospel and we find out that Jesus' disciples are supposed to teach their disciples everything that Jesus taught them, then we've got to go back to the beginning of Matthew's gospel and read it again to remind ourselves what Jesus taught them. So let's do that. We won't, of course, have time to look at everything, but let's look at five key highlights of what Jesus taught his disciples. First, if we turn back to Matthew 4, 18 to 20. Matthew 4, 18 to 20. We read that as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. So Jesus begins first with an invitation. And Jesus himself does the inviting. Jesus' disciples don't choose him. He chooses them. Jesus chooses who he wants to be his disciples and he invites them into a relationship with him. If you know anything about Peter and Andrew, then, who Jesus is inviting here, then you realize that, that Jesus didn't pick these guys because they were smarter or richer or, or more together than anyone else. So why did Jesus choose these guys? Why did he invite them into a relationship with him? Well, from everything else we know about Jesus, chances are he prayed about it. And he asked God the Father whom he should choose. We know from John's Gospel that this wasn't Jesus' first encounter with Peter and Andrew. He'd met them before. They'd spent some time together. He'd gotten to know them. He'd prayed about it. And he'd come to the conclusion that God was drawing them into relationship with him. And so Jesus invites them to be his disciples. And his invitation is, is warm. It's, it's positive. Jesus gives them a wonderful promise. He says, you guys are fishermen. Come follow me and I'll teach you how to catch people. Won't that be great? I'm going to teach you to do something even more significant than catching fish. I'm inviting you into my life to be with me. And so a positive invitation is the first step of discipleship. When I was in college, one of the leaders of the Christian fellowship I was a part of did that for me. He invited me into his life. Uh, he was a year ahead of me, so he had a better uh, room pick for uh, the next year. And at the end of my first year of college, he, he looked over the first year students and he said, hey, Dick, you want to be my roommate next year? Living together will make it easier for us to pray together, to learn from God's word together. We'll have lots of fun, too. He had a, a TV VCR, which was a big deal in those days. And 
still a big deal. He had a convertible Mustang. So there was, there was invitation here. Well, this brings us to the second thing Jesus did. He shared his life with his disciples. Life on life. You can see Jesus doing this all over the Gospels. We'll just look at one quick example in uh, Matthew 8, 14 and 15. Matthew 8, 14 and 15. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying there in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand and the fever left her and she got up and began to wait on him. Here we see Jesus was involved in Peter's everyday life. He was hanging out in Peter's home. Now, we, we tend to picture Peter leaving his family behind to go off and, and follow Jesus, and, and that was often true, but evidently other times they were hanging out at Peter's house with his family. Jesus didn't just meet his disciples for Bible study on the first and third Wednesdays of each month. But, but rather, whether they were off on the road together ministering in various towns or, or whether they were home together in Galilee, they were doing life together. Because that's where the Christian life becomes more than theory. That, that's where you, you can see how it actually works. You, you get to see someone, how they uh, react under stress. You get to see how they talk to their family members how they uh, deal with difficult issues at work. Now, now we don't live in Jesus' culture, right? We, we don't live in a culture where people quit their jobs and they go off and wander around with rabbis for a few years. So how do we do this kind of life on life today? Well, we do it as creatively as we can. We, we invite people into our lives. I'll, I'll tell you from my experience, it was a lot easier in college driving around in my friend's uh, convertible Mustang and hanging out in his dorm room it's more challenging now, especially having a family. But, but I still work at it. I've, I've changed the radiator fluid in my car with people from the church. I've uh, done my grocery shopping with them. I've, I've driven them to pick up their cars from the mechanics. Discipleship doesn't need to take a whole bunch of our extra time if we can be intentionally creative about inviting people into the things that we're already doing anyway. So. It does involve giving up some of our privacy to include others. When my wife Anne lived in Africa some years ago, there was a, an older mom there who from time to time would invite Anne over to, to visit her in her home. And while this woman was doing her dishes or doing the laundry, they would talk. And, and that time together had a big impact on Anne's life. Discipleship has to include life on life. Third, discipleship also involves challenge. Let's look at Matthew 16, 24 to 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. That's challenge, right? <laughs> Jesus warmly invites his disciples. He, he promises them a great deal, but he also challenges them a lot. Because the point of discipleship is not to remain the same. No, it's, it's, it's that you're transformed. It's that you, you come to look a lot more like the master. And that's true of any kind of apprenticeship. A karate master pushes his apprentices hard so that they grow up in the art of karate. If you've seen Karate Kid, of course, you remember that, right? Wax on, wax off. 
And, and Jesus' approach to discipleship is, is especially challenging because Jesus is, is teaching us how to be truly human again. Jesus is the true human being. We saw that two weeks ago in the book of Colossians. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is, is, is what a human being, what God created a human being to, to, to look like. And, uh, and what is a human being created for? Loving others. And so as Jesus shows us, and as we all know by now, at least in theory, loving others hurts sometimes. It, it requires sacrifice, right? And so Jesus says to his disciples, come to me and, and learn how to be real human beings, not just selfish, spoiled, self-centered imitations of humanity, but, but the real deal. Learn to become genuine, glorious, fully alive human beings as you were meant to be. Learn, learn to give your lives for others in love. Learn that, that life is not found in holding on to life, but it's found in laying down your life for others in love. You know, sometimes we're, we're afraid to challenge one another. We don't want to make uh, anyone feel uncomfortable. We don't want to offend them. But discipleship is about growing and, and changing. And if someone doesn't want to grow and change, then they don't really want to follow Jesus. A disciple of Jesus wants to grow. That's what they've signed up for. I remember talking a few years ago to a, a woman, a young mom at CBC, and, and she was saying how much she appreciated friends who, uh, who called her on things and who, who challenged her to change. And that's what discipleship is about. It's about helping one another to grow gently, respectfully, patiently, sensitively, of course, with lots of encouragement along the way, and also challengingly. All right, so that's the third lesson. The, the fourth we learned from Jesus here is in Matthew 17, 28 to, or I'm sorry, 18 to 28, 18 to 20. At one, Matthew 17, 18 to 20. While, while Jesus was up a mountain with a few of his other disciples, the rest of them were down below and they were trying to cast a demon out of a boy. Uh, this was one of the skills that Jesus had, had taught his disciples. And for some reason, they couldn't do it in this case. And so when Jesus catches up with them in verse 18, we read, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in privately and they asked, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So this is a teachable moment. The, the disciples have, have tried to do what Jesus has taught them to do, and, and in this case, they've failed. And so now Jesus has to teach them how to handle this harder case. We've used the shape of a square here at CBC to, um, to show how Jesus teaches his disciples and how he, um, how he uh, adjusts the way that he teaches them as they grow and as they learn. And so Jesus begins by, by saying to them, I'll do it and you watch. You, you just follow me and you watch and you learn. I'll listen to the Father. I'll discern where the Father's working. I'll go there and respond. I'll preach. I'll, I'll teach. I'll lead. I'll invite people to follow me. I'll cast out demons. And you watch how I do it. 
But then after a while, Jesus begins to involve them. Now we move to I do you help. Jesus is still the main leader, but, but he's having his disciples begin to participate. When he feeds the 5,000, he asks them, he says to them, you give them something to eat. And then he shows them how, how he's going to do that. And he has them sit, sit down the people and, and has them hand out the bread. When he's dealing with the crowds, his disciples are interacting, beginning to deal with the people too. Remember that time when they, they messed up? They told the moms and dads that Jesus was too busy to bless their children. And Jesus says, oh, no, 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 guys, let the little children come to me. I've got something else to teach you here. Let me direct you in how you're supposed to help me. So the disciples' learning is becoming hands-on now as they help. Then third, Jesus gives them yet more responsibility. He says, okay, now you do it, and I'll help you. That's what we have going on in this story that we just looked at about the, the boy with the demon. Now Jesus' disciples are healing. They're casting out demons. Sometimes they're succeeding. Other times, the, like here, they're failing. And Jesus is there. He's there to debrief them, to, to help them troubleshoot, to teach them how to improve, to encourage them. Until finally, fourth, Jesus says, okay, you guys have, have got it, and I've completed what I need to do here. Now it's time for you to do it by yourselves. Um, and I'm going to stand back and watch. In fact, I'm going to uh, leave. I'm going to ascend to heaven. And uh, I'm going to leave the ministry in your hands. And I'm still watching you. I'm communicating with you through the Holy Spirit. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. But it's your game now. So notice the point here. You can't learn the Christian life from just sitting in a classroom or in a pew all the time. Any more than you can learn to be a plumber from sitting in a classroom. I mean, you, you've got to go out there. You've got to try it. You've got to learn from the master. You know, first you get under the sink with them and you watch how they do it. Then, then you help them. And then, then you get under there. You take on more responsibility yourself and they help you until finally they're standing back watching as you do it yourself. So the only way to grow in your faith, in your discipleship, is, is to try new things and, and to fail at them sometimes. I would never have learned to, to preach or, or to pastor if, if pastors in churches that I attended didn't say, okay, here, get up and try it. You know, try to preach a sermon. Try to, to lead a Bible study or to chair a meeting. Try to visit someone in the hospital. And, and I'm here when you get stuck. I'll give you suggestions. I'll, I'll debrief you afterwards. And if, if we're going to raise up a, a new generation, then we can't continue to do everything ourselves because we know we can do it better. No, we've got to invite others to, to participate, to try. We've got to let them make mistakes. We've got to let them do things differently. We, we've got to become their cheerleaders, giving them lots of encouragement even when they mess up. You know, at the last church I was a part of, we had three great youthful worship bands. We had more musicians than we knew what to do with. And do you know why? It's because our older people had the heart to, to suffer through young people getting up there and trying and making mistakes. Because that's how they were going to learn. And that's how they, they improved. They were given freedom to try. They were given permission to try it their way. And guess what? Some of those young people are, are pastors now. They're missionaries in other countries. That's what discipleship is about. It, Brings us, therefore, to our fifth and our final point, back where we started in Matthew 28. Let's read it again, starting in verse 18 this time. 
Then Jesus came to them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So here we see reproduction. What is a disciple of Jesus? A disciple of Jesus is someone who's like Jesus and who does what Jesus does. And ultimately, this means a disciple is someone who makes other disciples, right? Because that's what Jesus does. That's what he taught his disciples to do. To be a disciple is ultimately to make a disciple. I was talking last week to um, one of the leaders of a well-respected, solid, Christ-centered denomination. And he was telling me that his denomination has recognized that unless churches begin to make disciples, unless we get back to the strategy Jesus has given us, our churches aren't going to grow. In fact, they may not even survive. And so this leader was telling me he had been meeting with, um, with clusters of, of pastors from his denomination around the East Coast. A group in uh, Long Island, a group in northern New Jersey, another in southern New Jersey, another in Pennsylvania. And at each, each of these pastors' clusters, he had been asking the pastors, he, he, he asked them, how many people can you think of in your churches who, who could tell you the story of when they were younger and a person in their life came alongside of them and, and poured into them and, and taught them the faith? And as a result of that, they've, they've grown up, they've matured spiritually, and now they're doing that for someone else. And he told me that as he asked pastor's group after pastor's group this, all he got were, were a lot of blank and uncomfortable looks. And among all those pastors representing all those churches, he said there was only one case of one pastor who said, oh yeah, I've got someone like that in my church. No wonder our churches aren't growing more or transforming our culture. If we're not doing the one basic thing that Jesus told us to do. Then this leader told me his own story. He said he'd grown up in the church, in a church about the size of CBC, maybe a little bit bigger. And um, he said that when he was college age, uh, his pastor took all the college age kids and formed them into a group and, and taught them to study the scriptures, taught them to, to pray, gave them chances to, to preach, took them to visit people. And and then this leader concluded, he said, of all the friends that I had during that time at that church when I was in high school and I was in college, he said, I know of at least 40 who were a part of that discipleship group who today are pastors or, or missionaries from that one little church. That's the power of discipleship. So how about us? Well, I can think of a bunch of reasons this would never work at CBC. I mean, we're, we have too many other things to do. We've got too many church things to do, we, not to mention all of our other obligations and activities in our lives. We're, we're too busy. We don't have time. But, you know, on the other hand, I could think of a bunch of reasons that this could work at CBC, that, that we could actually launch a people movement out of this little log cabin that would change countless lives, that would, would transform lives and, and communities beyond what we even dare to dream of right now. First of all, I think it could work because we're already doing it, at least a little bit. 
informally sometimes, one-on-one or in some of our Bible studies. And to aid and to focus this process, our our elders have developed 10 spiritual growth goals, 10 spiritual growth practices, right, that we sometimes talk about. They're this set of tools, this this common language, which make it easier for us to to help each other grow, to to make it more tangible. And, And we have these crazy shapes to help us remember them, right, so we can then pass them on to someone else. And we're going to focus on this more next week. So this is just a warm-up for, for talking about those next week. Also at CBC, discipleship is foundational to the missional communities that we've begun. I'm meeting with the missional community leaders in a discipleship group, a huddle, we call it. And hopefully soon, each of those leaders is going to start a group like that of their own to, to huddle some of those in their missional community. And the goal of those groups will be that one day as those people grow and mature, they'll be able to start a huddle of their own to disciple others. That's the reproduction part. But whether you're in a missional community or not right now, here's here's my challenge for you from from these passages we've looked at, from Jesus' example. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Disciples make disciples. Discipleship is a a team sport. It's not something you pursue alone on your own. No, it's more like a relay race. It's something you you learn from others and then you pass it on to others. That's Jesus' strategy. Disciples making disciples making disciples. So first question, who is discipling you? Have you been discipled? If not, could you find someone to disciple you? Could you look around and and find someone whose faith you admire and say, hey, could we meet together? Could you spend some time with me? And then second, who are you discipling? Could you start a, a little discipling group? Just pull together a few other friends, a few other people, and say, hey, let's learn together. You know, I don't know everything, but, but I'll share what I know, and, and we'll learn from one another as we go. If you'd like some training in, uh, or some tips, some pointers, some resources in how to start a little group like that, come talk to me. I'd be happy to help you. Let's pray. Jesus, we... Take time this morning to remember your example. How you just ministered for three years. You touched a lot of people and a lot of them abandoned you at the end. And then you died. And you rose again and ascended and your earthly ministry was over and yet you left behind 12 people. And with your Holy Spirit with them, they went on to turn the world of their day upside down. And the church has evolved since then. Um, And sometimes we find it hard to make our way back to what you originally taught us. Uh, Discipleship can be intimidating. Sometimes we don't think of ourselves as a spiritual master like you were. But I pray that you'd help us to find our way that you'd give us the courage, the vision, the excitement to get involved in each other's lives, to learn and grow together, to teach each other. And I pray that you would raise up in the years to come a people movement 
the kingdom movement out of this church, which touches lives and transforms neighborhoods. For your glory, Jesus. Amen.